Hi everyone, welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. I'm Langdon DeMint. And I'm Julian Taylor. And welcome to our podcast. Hey everybody, and thanks for tuning in to part two of this special podcast where we spoke with Ed Clancy, former professional cyclist. And in part one, we had some really interesting discussions. We talked about how many Olympic gold medals that he'd won. And it was only a measly three, by the way. Um, we also talked about some interesting facts and, and things that had happened in his life, like sharing a house with two other cycling superstars, Mark Cavendish and Geraint Thomas. So welcome to part two. And in this part, we talked to Ed and grilled Ed about performance management and how performance management was so important to achieving optimal performance. And we started to relate and think about that and how we could relate it back to our world of safety. So all you need to do now is sit back, you need to relax and listen, and that's your next half hour of your life taken care of. Thank you very much. Uh, that point, because I think that is a bit massive point, isn't it, Landon, is, is actually how do you get an organisation to change? Yeah. Uh, I'm interested, how did Brailsford, sorry, I call him Bra Mr. Yeah. Brailsford, yeah. Sir David Brailsford, because <laughs> yeah. um, he's, he's, he's one of my heroes, because I, I love what he's done in different teams. Yeah. yeah. How did he come into to British cycling? How did he sell that to, to, the, to the team and to the athletes? Mm. Well, I guess... I didn't miss that, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. <Okay>. I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a start, I think, when you look at Dave and who he was and what he looked like in that organisation at this point in time, I always saw, um, you know, back in 2008, I always saw Dave as, um, not old, but he was a senior figure. Yeah. But when, you, when I look at him now, I'm like, that guy probably wasn't much older than I am today. Yeah. And to be the performance director of the Great Britain cycling team, and to be fair, at that point in time, he wasn't Sir David Brailsford, he was just Dave. That's yeah. <laughs> what we call him. He didn't have a massive history of success or, um, you know, he's credible, but he didn't have a massive history of credibility or experience or anything like that behind him. Yeah. But he did have that willingness to learn. And it was, um, it was almost infectious. And, you know, if you look at the things that he brought in, he even... Um, there's a fella called Professor Steve Peters who yeah. worked with us. Yeah, yeah. It sounds pretty um, run-of-the-mill these days, but I don't think there was many sports teams around that you know would lean on a sports psychologist as heavily as the Great Britain Cycling Programme did at that point in time. Um, I think he was a big part of encouraging everyone to sort of um, you know look at look in the mirror, as Shane Sutton would sort of say. Um, so Dave, yeah. He, he didn't let an ego get in the way of, you know, us making small changes. He brought in Steve Peters, things like that. I mean, Dave himself, actually, I didn't know this at the time, but I've met, um, there's a fella that was, um, used to work in DHL, was like quite a senior fella yeah. uh, called Guy, uh, that worked quite senior in DHL. And Dave Brailsford, I know now, it's sort of lean on him for a little bit of mentoring, you know, in sort of the business world and the politics and things like that. and. Again, it's just having that willingness to learn and look outside of your own yeah. discipline and yeah, sport exactly, and yeah. look elsewhere for it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, Tim, I don't know if I've answered your question. Your question was more along the lines of how did that uh, spread across the entire organization? Because bringing I, marginal gains yeah. in for the first time must have been a bit of a, a was cultural there change. Yeah. Was there pushback to that change um, in philosophy? Uh, uh, to me, that's one of the. I feel like that's an avenue to think because, you know, now we hear it 
And I got to think it was the same way for you then, most likely, because you were what at that age when the 20, I don't know, 20, 20 years old, let's just say. There's that whole yeah. younger versus older. You know, there's a way that they each learn differently. And the way yeah. I do things versus, you know, I'm 37. There's a way I do things versus what an 18 year old or whatever now that's, you know, it's not, the, yeah. it's not yeah, the yeah. same. And likewise, a 60, you know? Yeah, 100%. I can't get my head around social media either. But I think that the, the point is like, I don't know. Um, in terms of like, why were we all on this way? Was there any resistance? Not really, because like the way I saw it, the way I felt at the time, is probably a better way of saying it. The way I felt at the time in the early days, pre-2008 and pre-2012, is that we were all bonded by this united goal and this united dream of like taking the world on and winning everything. You know, I, I felt that everyone was sort of like in it together. And this was before things really blew up and Again, I, I touched earlier on like the difficulties of dealing with success in an organization. You know, I do feel like there was probably a point in time where it was um, everyone had a value, everyone had a worth. And it's almost like people start looking over the shoulder within the organization saying like, well, why is that person's brand bigger than mine? Or, you know, why is it that, that person's doing that job and I haven't been promoted to that? And that was difficult. But back in those days, you know, it was almost that we were all united by the fact that we were like the up and comers, like, you know, it was, we were going to take on the established cycling nations of Australia and mainland Europe. And ha ha to be fair to Dave, to, this is probably the best answers I can give you. How did we do it? How did we get everyone on the same page? How did we not have any resistance into the new philosophies and psychology and things like that? I think if there's, the short answer is we were united by a common goal, like a big pack of husky dogs all pulling against the weight, all pulling in the same direction. That's all we needed to know. So, so actually, again, it ties into what we talk about. I mean, it's, it's, it's a subtle link, but we talk about, rather than talking about safety as a separate thing, make safety part of the organisational goal. Yeah. Make safety a part of your organisational focus. Yeah. So actually, you're not talking about it as, oh, we need to do this, this is what we're trying to do. Oh, and if, if we can, we'll do it in a safe way. We, we, we talk about it as one thing. Um, I'm kind of flitting to and fro because I'm just yeah. really interested to talk to you as well, Ed, and, and hear some of the stuff that you've got to say. One point, you shared a house with two of my other heroes. <laughs> so, yeah. so have you ever heard of a guy called, and you could have to tell me, how do you say Geraint? Is it? Oh, Geraint. 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 Uh, yeah. Geraint Thomas. Okay. Yeah. Who's won the race? Yeah. So you know what the race is, don't you, Landon? There's only one cycle, the Tour de France. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know Lance. Okay. And you've also <laughs> Okay. We all know Lance. Yeah. Um Okay. My my neighbour told me a very bad joke about Lance, which I'm not going to repeat on the pod. He told it me this morning. So well, he was basically saying, he was saying, he said, I've got all the time in the world for Lance. He said he, he, he won all those races. He said, when I was on drugs, I couldn't even find my bike, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty, yeah. You know yeah, what? Yeah. But that brings up a good point. Okay. But, but the other guy was. I'm was, not going to go there, but that brings up a good point. <laughs> was, was, and if you meet my missus, all she'll talk about is Cav. Yeah, she yeah, loves yeah. Cav. Um, yeah. So you got a house with three 
future stars. Mm. Did you realise at the time you went because you, you were pretty young kids then, weren't you? Really? Yeah, yeah. Did we realise at the time that we, the potential? Did you realise um, what was what was what could happen? Uh, it depends who you ask. Probably, if you ask, Cav always believed in himself. Right. Yeah. Like um, he didn't really. <laughs> By all rights, he had no reason to. Like, you know, he wasn't... Um, he'll, he'll tell you this himself. He was never the most athletically gifted, yeah. you know, athlete. He never even made the talent team criteria that I mentioned yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he could definitely race a bike. He had good tactical awareness. He was determined. Um, very driven. Maybe if you asked him, you know, when he was 18 years old, living with me and Geraint and the boys in Manchester, whether he was going to be the best sprinter of all time, I reckon he'd have said, yeah. Yeah, he always believed in himself, and um, it's, it's interesting. Isn't it? there's, there's this idea that, like, you know, winners always believe in themselves and things like that. Yeah. You know, in my experience, they don't always, and I think a lot of them are sort of driven by the, you know, insecurities or the self doubts to some extent. But Cav always believed in himself. Cav, he always told you he was going to be the best sprinter in the world, and funnily enough, <laughs> he, was he was right. You know, because um, just just for those people who are listening who don't know. He's just le he leveled two years ago. Was it yeah, two he's years ago. Stage wins with um, Eddie, Merckx. Eddie Merckx. Yeah, who, who was kind of the all-time great. Yeah, interesting time for Cav right now. I think everyone's waiting to see. Will he go again? Yeah, who he signs for next year in terms of his team and like you know can he can he do it again and can he get one more one more? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a massive fan of Cav. He's um, he really is a great guy. Just so passionate and you know when he. When he wins, you see the emotion yeah. pouring out of him. When he gets angry, you see yeah. the emotion pouring out of him. And um, yeah, he's, he is the best thing about cycling in many ways. Uh, Geraint, I guess he was more methodical. Like, you know, he was a bit more, bit more subdued and thoughtful. But again, like just it's almost like something wrong with him. He, he never, he'd never quit. He'd never throw the towel in. Yeah. It doesn't matter how tired it, he was or how much it was raining. Or oh, which bone he'd broken. Yeah, man, just like riding the Tour de France with broken hips and things like that. Just like it was part and parcel of, yeah. He's, he's my hero because he's, I do have a reputation for falling off bikes and so does, so does Geraint Thomas. He, he was yeah, pretty good yeah. at falling off at one yeah. point. So. Yeah, I'd let you tell him that. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. But he got back on and rode again. Yeah, that was the difference. Hard as nails, yeah. isn't he? Um, yeah. And he still is, I think. I said this to him um, this year, you know, a few months back, he got third in the Tour de France at 36 years old after almost everyone um, externally and internally written off yeah, yeah. You know, to yeah. some extent. Yeah. And it's, just, it's not going to be, not necessarily a standout result. It's not the thing that people are going to remember him for. But I think that's his biggest achievement, yeah. that podium in the oh, tour. Spectacular. You know, the young yeah. kids have come up and Podjikar and all that are just um, they're potentially bringing things to the sport that nobody's ever seen. Yeah, I think for G to like, <laughs> just a warrior, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, to battle on and get that result um, out, not out of the blue, but against the odds. Yeah, fair play to him. Yeah. G is a lot easier to pronounce, I do have to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Just, just, you know, I mean, we've talked about marginal gains, but can you confirm one thing for me? Because I'm try. a man who likes his sleep. Yeah, yeah. Was part of marginal gains down to that kind of detail that when you went away and stayed in a hotel, yeah, yeah. 
you take your own mattress and pillows. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, um, Team Sky really sort of popularised that idea of like taking mattresses and pillows and all that round. And of course, they had the money and resources to do so, and they did. And as far as I know, they still do, and other teams do it as well. And they even hear stories of like uh, some of the World Tour teams will go around and obviously in different hotels all the time. And they take their own chef there and they'll um, have someone that replaces the filter and the air conditioning units in the hotel if they have to, to make sure it's fresh for the riders and things like that. So they don't get any dust particles and things when they sleep in. But, um, but on the topic of sleep, it's, it's interesting. There's masses of evidence to suggest that um, sleep's not just beneficial for athletes, but you know, people like yourselves, business people. Yeah. And so it's always this like, idea that, you know, getting eight, eight and a half, nine hours of sleep is like demonized as being lazy or, it's the total opposite, you know, if you look at the health benefits of having, you know, consistent sleep in a good environment, um, massive. There's a fellow called Matthew Walker that's, um, he's done a few podcasts, he's a sleep expert, he's got a book that I've read, it's just, it's fascinating, you know, how many just unbelievable stats there are about how useful good sleep is. And funnily enough, I mean, before I'd heard of Matthew Walker and read his books and everything, the one thing I'd always try and prioritize above everything else is sleep. I just knew that I couldn't, not just couldn't ride a bike, I couldn't reply to an email, I couldn't concentrate, uh, I couldn't control my temper if I hadn't slept. And um, yeah, I think that's a marginal gain that really anyone can apply here. And, and, and again, there's a direct relation there, isn't there, to safety as well, Langdon? Yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, and I, so, I was never, we, we kind of hit up. I was never a professional athlete. Long ways from it. Let's keep that separate. <laughs> he tried to get us on him that he was a serious golfer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, played, played college golf and unfortunately chose not to pursue it. Um, you know, in retrospect, maybe I wish I had. But, you know, it is what it is at this point. Um, I'll have the senior tour I'll look forward to. <laughs> but I, I wonder what, and I think we applied here all the time. And that is, and we've kind of hit on a little bit, that value of understanding what you're wanting to do. And Jules was just, I don't know if he was alluding to it, but I took it as this. So that off the job, on the job correlation of health and safety and importance. So what I'm getting at is you understood that when you were in training, what you were doing, that was your on the job preparation for the competition, correct? Which would be your on the job. Yep. You understood that off the job. So when maybe when it wasn't necessarily your rigorous training, there's a correlation to what you did during that time. What would that do to your on the job? And I think that's something we also try to yeah. we try to really build up better is that 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 mindset of what I do at home is my business. Yeah, yeah. What I do at work, that's works business. But honestly, you know, Tiger Woods, Roger Federer, it, it doesn't matter who it is, everything that they do, it's for that on the job, because there is an understanding that if I get hurt at home, I'm not going to be able to perform on the job. Likewise, if I get hurt on the job, that's going to have an adverse effect at home. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts on that kind of that, that correlation? And there is a little difference, right? Because you reached pinnacle that most yeah. most don't i mean that you know and that's so i think there is a little mindset difference realistically yeah. for any professional athlete versus everyone else but what are your thoughts when you're talking 
how do you try to portray that to others, to, you know, anyone, typical lay person, us, or whatever it is? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, you know, athletes, um, when the most elite uh, track cycling athlete, or even the, the Tour de France greats, you know, the a big week, you know, for their actual on-bike training, it might be 30, might be 35 hours. You know, if they're really going for a big week on the road bikes, a huge week. Um, it's almost like a part-time job. So what I'm saying is they're never really off the job. Like every time you eat something, every time you sleep, um, what you get up, uh, the interactions you have, how you conduct yourself um, around, you know, people and airports, and you're never off the job, you know? So yeah, in, term, in terms of that, there's um, the the life of an elite sports person. I, for me, that was the hardest thing about it. You're never off the job, you know. That that was part and parcel of being a pro athlete. But in terms of safety, in particular, um, yeah, of course, th we'd compete really, you know, and it really mattered under the lights for four minutes once every four years. You know, I had to condense four years of hard work. Um, and sacrifice and dedication and suffering and try and get it right in four minutes, once every four years. So everything else around it, if we had a poorly maintained bike for our one hour training ride the day before and the chain snapped when you're doing a little five second sprint, you know, you've got the potential there to wipe out your entire like cycle of work, if that makes sense, you know? Um, in terms of safety, like we always wore helmets, you know, when we're out on the roads in Portugal doing the training camp, we'd always try and have a flashing rear light on us and things like that. Again, it's sort of like a marginal gain in a completely different context, but um, I'd be lying if I said like, you know, safety was always at the forefront of our minds when we were training, um, but it was definitely there. And we knew that every time we had a stupid crash in training, that affected what we were gonna do on the big day. Every time we had a mechanical failure that led to a little injury or illness or whatever, um, illness, probably even better example, food hygiene. Every time we took our eye off the ball and lost a week of training with food poisoning, that's going to cost us on the big day. You know, and I think, but I, I think, I mean, maybe you know, but everything you're saying really paints that, it paints that picture of a lot of times we don't realize the adverse effects that come from something. Like if I get, I mean, it could be something as minor as if I get sick at home, you know, because of an extenuated circumstances, not even work related, what does that do to the workplace? Then if I either one go to work sick mm. and affect or infect, you know, 10 other people. Yeah. So then you have a couple of lines out or let's say I stay home. I'm not able to work. Then I have to use a day when that could be less than, you know what mm. I mean? It, it, there's a number of things. Yeah. It's, it is that mindset of you're always, whether you're on or off the job, you're kind of always on the job. And I don't mean that you, you need to have time away for sure, yeah. but there is that direct correlation. And something you said was you were all, everything you were doing was for that four minutes. So even when you were off the job, you understood how that directly correlated to that yeah. four minutes yeah. on the job, yeah. but you know, and, that's something I think we, and I, I know, especially as a, you know, in America, I think we can struggle with pretty often. It's, it's that mindset of, it's my business. Well, I think that's I'll, it doesn't matter because it's not going to affect me at work. When honestly, if I, you know, and I, I don't mean bad, but if I go out and I smoke ten packs once I get out of work, or if I'm getting drunk 
you know, at yeah. night. Does I, what, does that, on, what does that honestly do to the work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, I know. But, what, yeah. but, but it, honestly, what could that do to the workplace? I mean, and, and there's... I think the thing that really resonated, though, was the sleep piece. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. I, I think even if you're a... Even if you're somebody working on a construction site going up a scaffold and you're working at height, um, yeah. actually, if, if you're having arguments with your missus and you're not sleeping well, yeah. actually, how does that then affect your performance, your judgment, yeah. once you do get into the workplace? It's, got, it's absolutely correlate. Hey, I don't want to misquote um, anybody else, but if anyone's half interested in sleep, I'll check out the Matthew Walker fella. Yeah. And it's unbelievable stats. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to try and misquote. But um, it depends on how sleep deprived you are, yeah. but it seems to be almost as bad as drunk driving in wow. some circumstances. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, the, the, no, there's you're right. There's research, so, especially in healthcare, that has showed the same thing. From, yeah, from a nursing perspective, in terms of road, you're right. Yeah, road accidents, massive, um, massive issue. And in terms of um, health, so you know. Again, I, I don't want to quote how many hours the, the people are missing out on, but if you're getting the, if you you know up it from five to six hours of sleep to the proper eight and a half hours, nine hours, whatever it is you need, you'll have the testosterone levels of someone ten years younger than you, you know, which is quite enticing. And I, I, need, I need to get working on that then, don't I? <laughs> we all do. But um, and also that in terms of uh, you know over in the, the UK at least, you know, we lose an hour of sleep yeah. once a year and then we gain an hour of sleep, yeah. you know, six months later. Yeah. So when we lose an hour of sleep, apparently the NHS, you know, our National Health Service, all the ambulances are on standby because heart attacks are up. It's like 20 odd percent the next day. Yeah. And then funnily enough, you know, we get an extra hour in bed, 20% down. Yeah. And it's just, you can't make that stuff up. It's yeah. absolutely mental. You know, if that, those, again, you know, ch check out Matthew Walker and uh, some of his stats, you know, for the, the accurate evidence, but when you start learning things like that, you're like, wow, this really is a bit of a game changer, sleep. There's a really well-known, uh, horrendous accident that happened in the UK, which was a guy who was driving along, actually a motorway that you've driven along this morning, the M62. Yeah. And he was, he, he was in a Land Rover and he fell asleep and he went down an embankment and ended up on a train track and a train hit his car and derailed and it killed multiple people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's directly attributable to sleep again, isn't it? So it's huge. Yeah. yeah, it really is. And if nothing else, it, it affects the way you can sort of like manage your, your emotions, your hormone, your testosterone levels, all of that. Um, cortisol, you know, there's, there's so many benefits to getting a good night's sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting very conscious of the time here, Ed, because we've—I mean—we've had a fantastic chat, and we've—I I had some some ideas here, and we've kind of yeah, just yeah. gone all over the place, but it's been great. Um, one thing I did want to touch on, and, and I know you've kind of touched on it, is we, we've talked recently, and we Langdon, we've talked about how we change training, how we make training an, an effective thing in business, an effective thing within health and safety, and, and one of the things that we're passionate of talking about is coaching. Yeah. So actually, actually training in itself is not always effective. Yeah. It's actually that, how do we reinforce stuff and make it happen? Yeah. Um, and I'm just really interested from your perspective as a sportsman, mm. who were the best coaches and what, what was it that they did mm. that, that stood them out? Yeah, I think we've, we've already, we've, one thing we've sort of touched on already, um, having a, a clarity of clarity. Yeah. 
clarity of like the goal and yeah. like um, um, even like our coaches and you know, the fellow that sort of trained you up. You know, if he had a, an understanding of how different pieces of the puzzle all sort of like connected together, um, having an understanding of different departments yeah. within the sort of your setup okay. and making like little synergies, you know what I mean? So you're not, you're not competing against the commercial team. You know, for time, for example, yeah. they're working together to try and make it work so that you can do bits and bobs on your rest day and then they're happy, then they're not on your back. Um, so someone that, someone that has, um, you've got clarity of like, where are you going? Yeah. Um, they have an understanding of how the, the, the slightly bigger picture's working around you and all the interconnected parts. Um, someone with, I believe that official terms like psychological safety. Yeah. You, you feel like you can be honest and open without fears of, um, you know, consequence and repercussion. Psychological safety. You know, there's, there's nothing worse no, nothing worse than like sitting down and debriefing a team pursuit effort or whatever it is. And you know, all the riders are like, ah, oh, this was shit. You know, we didn't get that right. Or why did we do that? Oh, I didn't feel so good today. And then you sit down in front of the coach and the, the rider or the riders won't say, ah, oh, you know what boys, I'm having a shit day or I cocked that up. But they won't say, you know what, I cocked that up or I'm having a shit day because they're scared of the repercussions or being outed or being like questioned. Um, and again, so, we, that's a really, we talk about that all the time with safety. Yeah, Actually, yeah. If, if people are scared to talk, they don't, they, they don't tell you stuff, do they? Like, yeah. yeah, so someone that can sort of like harvest a, an atmosphere and a, a culture of um, appreciating honesty and openness and things like that. Um, fun yeah. as well. I, I like, um, like that. might be a personal yeah. preference, but I like leaders or coaches that add a bit of, um, obviously I, when you're in a position of leadership, you've got to be, you've got to be professional, haven't you? Nine times out of ten, and say the right things, and not have too much banter, and you've got to be seen as a position of um, leadership and authority and all that. But if now and again they can throw in a bit of jokes, a bit of banter, and you know, sports are, businesses are, life's are, you know, someone that can just do a little bit even there to sort of like, um, you know, lift the tension, yeah. make you feel like everything's going to be all right. That's that's important too. Yeah, there's a few things there, wasn't there? Sort of clarity of goal. Having a, white, a bit of an understanding about the bigger picture, psychological safety, and uh, the last thing I've just mentioned, which I forgot. Fun. Fun. Yeah. Fun. I love the psychological safety bit. I'll, yeah. I'm going to steal that one with abandon. So, um, I've got one more, one more question, and then I think it's only fair to, as well, to let you tell us just briefly what you're doing now, Ed. Yeah. Um, my, my, my final question is, because this is something everybody sort of imagines. Yeah. I've seen you cycling around the top of the velodrome with the Union Jack round your, yeah. round your back. How does that feel? How does it feel when you're standing on that top step and mm. the anthem's playing? Yeah, I, I, you can't, I can't, I can't describe it. There's no words for it. I, I, I don't care who you are, what you do, how much money you make, what a private jet you fly around on. There's nothing that makes you feel that high. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a drug, a drug you can inject in your arm that makes you feel that good. I just, I, you know, it's not, it's like the, uh, you've got to go from a place of like sitting there and thinking about this four minutes that could, um, you know, in some ways it's going to decide whether at least a cycling part of your life's been successful for the last four years or not. And uh, yeah, when you get it right and the stars align, which didn't happen a lot to be fair, um, 
felt better than anything I could ever feel. Like to stand up there with three, I was always lucky that I got on with my, my pals and the coaches and to stand up there with three of your best mates, yeah, not, nothing had come close and nothing's come close since. And uh, you know, <laughs> but that is when you don't get it right, it don't feel too good either. But like you said, life's hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. And, but I think um, there's a beauty in the struggle that you don't see until it's all over. Yeah. And uh, it's probably fair to say there's a bit of, you know, the success isn't always as uh, pretty as it seems as well. Yeah. So. Uh, cool. And what are you doing now, Ed? You've, we, we talked earlier about how it must be quite hard, actually, as a professional athlete coming to the end of that career. Yeah. Um, what are you out there doing now? Because I think again, that kind of relates back to our world and yeah. how you can help people. Yeah, so in terms of uh, like how retirement felt and that, you know, a lot's been said in the the, the press and you know, there's loads of well-documented um, struggles from Olympians, footballers, sports people, left, right and centre that struggled to come to terms with the afterlife. And yeah, for sure, it was really difficult actually, like early on. And um, I was really lucky, I had great support from British Cycling and um, my agents always had my back. Um, yeah, there's a few people that really sort of looked out for me and uh, made the transition as easy as possible. And you know, but even with all my sort of first world problems, it's just it's bizarre getting your head around it. It's like it sounds. Uh, well, I suppose you know, it's it must have identity been. and like this weird thing you've this weird little niche thing that you did that you know. You mentioned I'm your hero for riding a bike around a track in a skin suit. It is bizarre, but there's a lot of people, you know, within the velodrome that look up to you because of that. And then all of a sudden, it's probably still the thing that you can do best in life, but it has no worth to you anymore. And you've almost got to like get off that ladder and start climbing a different one from step one. And so that's how it feels. But right now, I feel good. Yeah, we're getting good. there. You know, I've got a. So to answer your question in terms of what am I doing, I've got a, a contract with British Cycling. So I work with their research and innovation team, developing skin suits, bikes um, for the current riders. So you're coming up the 1%? Yeah, well, I'm trying my best and I, do, I still do the test riding job, which is great because I actually enjoy riding the bikes these days. <laughs> I do a bit with the commercial team of British Cycling. I uh, still work with my sports agent, so I do a bit of corporate speaking, uh, public speaking, things like that, brand ambassador work. I'm doing a bit of work actually with uh, CAMS, Cycle Accident Management Services. I've just come back from Tenerife, um, more for a team building exercise last week <laughs> for that. But I have got a passion in terms of cycle safety and uh, helping people um, get back on their bike because you know, unfortunately everyone knows someone that's been injured you know, out there on the roads. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I do is I work with a performance consultancy business called Pro Noctis. And, um, I've got my own brand within that called Pursuit Line now, and really that's kind of, um, <laughs> we've kind of spoke a lot about it today, and it's obviously something I've got an interest in, but it's marrying up like the high performance principles that I've took from, taken from sport and um, partnering that up with an established performance consultancy business that you know goes into the workplace and uh, tries to develop management leadership roles, um, boardroom advice, things like that, and train up the workforce. So so we talked earlier about Cav and, and, and Cav and his supreme confidence. I think I'm more in, in the normal camp, which is that of sort of suffering from imposter syndrome. And you, you sit there thinking, how on earth am I doing this? And I'm sat here today thinking, how on, how on earth am I sitting here talking to Ed Clancy about safety? But Ed, oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for um, having So me thank you very much. Cheers. Uh, Langdon, any final words from you? No, you know, we just definitely appreciate your time, Ed. It's, it's awesome to hear the applicability of the changes that that y'all were able to make 
and the British cycling team and just especially because it's the same thing. I mean, as you've heard about what we try to say, it's picking out the little, the little pieces of how you can constantly improve. So very much appreciate your time and being able to glean some of that knowledge and insights. Uh, it's definitely invaluable. Cheers, Langdon. Cheers. Thanks, Langdon. Hope it was helpful. Thanks, mate. For sure. Thank you. Virtual shake. I appreciate your time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. But for everyone, thanks for joining in to two bald guys talking safety. This time we had two bald guys and one guy with hair. So next time, if Ed joins us, he will be shaved for this uh, for this podcast. So we appreciate we appreciate everyone joining <laughs> in. <laughs> Everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. Please follow and subscribe to wherever you stream your favorite podcast or visit us at evochicks.com. And if you want to see how follically challenged we really are, come and check us out on YouTube. If you've got value from the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and in the review section of this podcast, if you could leave us a review or a rating, that would be great. And as always, everyone, while you're going about your days, about your normal lives. Stay safe out there. Watch each other's back. <laughs>